Hi, and welcome to Fraternal Frights. I'm your co-host, Martin. And I'm your co-host, Darcy. Now, Darcy, we have talked a lot about this, and now this is Baby's first podcast. Woo! What are we doing on this podcast? We are going to be talking about weird, wonderful horror media. Um, whether it's shitty horror movies, ARGs. Um, if it's horror and it's got something we want to talk about it, then that's that's what we're going to do. Now, I want to say that it also extends beyond horror, but maybe it doesn't. Because I've talked you into also watching, like, rapture movies with me. And, other- <laughs> and that's its own flavor of horror. <laughs> Truly is, especially when you love existentialism. Oh, boy. Now, Darcy, tell me about why you decided to come on this podcast with me. Well, the reason being, I am a fan of horror media in general for a variety of reasons. Good horror media is absolutely captivating. It's suspense and terror grips you long after whatever media you're finished experiencing is done with. Um, and I really love horror, especially based in fantasy or mythology. Oftentimes, successful horror in that regard has a mythology and world building that I just absolutely adore and get sucked into. On the other hand, um, bad horror is entertaining a way in a way that bad horror genre or bad genre works of other genres um, is not. Like, bad horror... I was about to say, this is mostly going to be bad horror. Make exactly. No doubt about it. Oh, absolutely. The, inter- the intersection of, like, weirdness and, like, the occult, which, and, like, horror just kind of all melds into, like, this really gross, gelatinous Venn diagram where everything kind of bleeds out into each other. Yeah, kind of like, uh, like a big old blobby mess. Like a big old blobby mess. Exactly. But bad horror has such a charm in and of itself. Because more often than not, bad horror... Can, is so fascinating and often much more funny than bad works of other genres. Like a bad thriller movie or suspenseful movie of some variety is usually just boring to me. Whereas when horror doesn't land, there's something about the failed execution of fear that's just so schlocky and fun and goofy. Um, so overall, horror, regardless of the quality that you find yourself experiencing, has merit to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because, like, Horror is supposed to prey on, like, your most intimate fears. And, like, this really primal lizard brain part of yourself that has, like, a knee-jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. So, it's as visceral. It's, it hits you at your absolute very core in ways that nothing else really does. So, I think when it's supposed to fail, or it's nothing is supposed to fail. <laughs> but when it does, when it's supposed to work and then it fails... I think it's this hard-hitting reality of like, oh, you were supposed to, you were supposed to impact me in this particular way, and you, you were delving deep into my soul, and you were like rummaging around in there, and you found like a rubber some, chicken. You found like a rubber chicken. You just give it a honk. You're like, yeah, I'll deal with that. <laughs> you're honking the rubber chicken part of my soul. <laughs> Precisely, and that's what bad horror media does to you. It just honks the rubber chicken part of your soul, reaches right in and goes. Oh. Uh, I think another merit to like bad media, at least for me, is mm-hmm. that I find there is, and this is kind of a justification I use to try to make other people watch bad media mm-hmm. with me, and it never works. But this is my my genuine my genuine philosophy with when you are watching bad media, someone doesn't think it's bad. 
it's, even if you just take it like, okay, it's probably only the creator. Mm-hmm. What did they find in this story? What did they find in this production that is worth telling? Absolutely. And that's a perspective that I am starting to appreciate myself. Like when it comes to your view, that that is a perspective that I mostly took with independent works on the internet, like ARGs I came across. I guess I was willing to be a little more forgiving and look more to see the value in it than something that has an actual budget behind it. Even if it's still a fairly B-list movie or work of media in general, I guess previously I was more willing to give credit of, hey, what did the person who created the scene it, rather than something that's got some actual backing. I'm just like, ha, this is stupid. When you get to like these higher levels of like, I don't want to call it creating, but like uh, higher levels of production value. Exactly. Where more people get involved. When you're talking about like going from like a singular or two people production to like a group of five to ten to higher and higher with more money, then I think the message or the intent can kind of be a little bit diluted, but there's still that intent. Mm-hmm. Except now you have to factor in more people and that these people also will have differing intents. Like if you have, let's say like your average B movie, let's talk about the Bye Bye Man. <laughs> Oh boy, the Bye Bye Man. This is not the movie we're talking about. I just want to use that as like an example that um, the creator had a particular message and intent that he wanted with the film or she. I'm not sure who's behind it. You, The actors have a particular intent. The producers have a particular intent. And all of these are going to be different because like a producer wants to mostly make money. Director wants to make a good movie. And actors want to make a good movie. But it's on a different scale because they have to worry only about, like, acting as opposed to, like, okay, this is how we're cutting the footage together. This is how I want this frame to be mm-hmm. shot to, per- to portray the narrative as this a whole. This is how I want these people to behave in this scene, and this is how I want them to do their line delivery. Because even though the actors themselves are the ones who are responsible for their characters, I, from my understanding of the way movie production works, the director is also responsible for giving them the prompt for how they're supposed to carry their character for the scene. Absolutely. And sometimes, like also talking about actors, sometimes they're just like the intent is like just to get a paycheck, which is fine. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. In some cases I do. A lot of cases I do. But sometimes you just <laughs> you just gotta live, man. You just gotta live. So we're not talking about bye bye man, unfortunately. Oh, uh, that'll be for another day. What we are talking about is Gehenna. What's the full title? The full title is Gehenna, Where Death Lives. Where Death Lives. It is a Japanese-American horror movie. And this is... This was going to be a fun bit I wanted to say for the podcast that I ended up spoiling for you. But this was a Kickstarter movie. And it really does not feel like one. Absolutely. It was the Kickstarter of Dr. Katagiri. (laughs) Get out of my house. This doesn't feel like a Kickstarter movie to me. You have Hiroshi Katagiri, who's worked on a bunch of different movies for special effects before. You have him working on Pacific Rim. He's uncredited, as listed by IMDb. He's also worked on some uh, movies. He's done some work for Dragon Ball Evolution. He's done some work with Monkey King 2, whatever that movie is. X-Men Origins Wolverine. I'm not saying that his special effects are bad. Oh, absolutely. If anything, there's there's evidence to the contrary. Exactly. Even in Gehenna, which is something we'll probably get to later on in the podcast, 
Um, but I believe, just from my view of the makeup effects, especially when it comes to later scenes of Pepe, I think they land really well. I would say that they're the key point of the movie. And Absolutely. That's, that's why I was so surprised that, like, every time I've seen this on Netflix does look like it's a regular B movie. Oh, absolutely. It looks like a movie I've scrolled past probably a billion times over the course of the last six or seven months, despite the fact that this movie was completed in 2016 and just hit Netflix two months ago. Yeah, it's been on the festival circuit for quite a while. <laughs> it's hard to call it B movie quality because it has like a lot of like these stellar components to it. What was the point that you made earlier? Absolutely. It's like we were discussing earlier. It's like Gehenna is like the Saipan shaman skinning the face off an A-movie conquistador and wearing it as its own. Like, in many outward ways, it does have, like, an A-movie quality, like the special effects. Some of the aspects of the editing, I would say, are pretty decent. But there's this sort of schlocky, campy... And at some points, just goofiness to it that belies its B-movie nature. Absolutely. It's, it feels like it literally is just like a vehicle to just use like these special effects. And like for the most part, I understand it's like mostly practical effects. Yes. It definitely does. The vehicle is a moving. It's a car that we are driving on the highway to, to movie town. <laughs> Old Tinseltown. But, uh... As, as we'll get into, at some points we hit a couple potholes along the way and get a little derailed. So let's get into the movie itself. Let's get into Gehenna, where death lives. So do we want to take this from the top? And I'm... Oh, absolutely. Because I see your note of... Uh, Weird to use a biblical name and term for something not Christian. And that's something I really came to towards the end of the movie. Because they mentioned this quote from Jesus... And uh, somewhere in the Bible, the good old Bible, the Holy Bible, the Holy Bible, the Holy Bible. But like Christian lore is not something they touch on at all. Right. And there's actually when they touch on this, like when with the the official site for this movie, they touch on a little bit where they they make a point where when talking about Gehenna as like a place as like a word instead of like the movie that it does kind of generally mean in a particular sense that, like, this is unholy, this is cursed ground, this is this is where, like... This is where the death lives. This is where death lives. You walk up to death's mailbox, you shove in a glitter bomb, and then you just walk away. Yeah. You, you don't ditch him. <laughs> you walk up to death's house, take a uh, little paper bag of dog shit, light it on fire, and book it. <laughs> it's still weird to me on this particular level, because, like, Gehenna's not really in, like, the typical lexicon or vocabulary. Lexicon. I'm pretentious. (laughs) It's not the typical vocabulary of, like, most people. And once you explain Gehenna as a word, people are like, yeah, biblical. That just sounds like another word for hell. And I mean, like, I don't know why this kind of, like, stuck to me. Like, it's like a weird thorn in my side about this movie. Like, and I, I think really what happened is Katagiri saw the word Gehenna and was like, I'm going to use that. And I think that's completely fine. It's still, it's it just, it, I it, wish it would have tied a little bit more into the actual plot and premise of the movie, aside for just being a descriptor of the location that they physically are in. Because again, while it, the, the word Gehenna and its actual meaning does really encapsulate the, the time or the, uh, the hellscape that they are currently trapped in, 
it also, again, doesn't really have any lore implications or ties otherwise to the rest of the setting or the plot. It just, maybe it would have made sense if they would have tied that into the Conquistador in some way, because, you know, see, God, I don't glory, even, gold, and all that jazz, but... See, I don't even mind that it has, like, it doesn't have lore implication. It's it's more of, like, the cognitive dissonance, because mm. it deals with what the movie presents as, like, the native belief, and with how... Oh, and that's uh, just the, a mess in itself. Yeah, with, like, the native religion. And it's very weird to juxtapose that with Christianity, especially, like, Christianity um, has typically been a big factor in, like, colonization, which has historically happened to Saipan a bunch of times. Yeah, and I think that's something the movie attempts to touch on, but let's face it, it doesn't do so in the most graceful way. It really wants to start that off with, like, the whole shebang, where we start in, like, 1670 in Saipan, and Mm -hmm. you have... You have people of Saipan who are doing this interesting, weird ritual with a character named Don Rodrigo, who I'm not entirely sure is an actual historical figure or not. Um, right. The, the Bajobo dolls, do that? Does it, Bajobo dolls are real. I Okay. Because that was something I should have done a little more research on. Things get weird with Bajobo dolls. Yeah. And, like, does that, does that have to deal with the initial, like face-snatching ritual of the Conquistador, or is that just something they introduce more that's associated lore later in the movie? I don't really know enough to say definitively, like, what Bajobo dolls are for, and, like, how they tie in with the culture in Saipan. Is this, like, a real thing? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the skinning of a guy's face is not... Yeah, that's category exclusive. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. And then I think there's some later stuff I want to talk about with the Bajobo dolls that are, like, not great. I know we've talked a little bit about the weirdness of the name and sort of the setting and implications, but let's talk about the premise of Gehenna. So Gehenna is basically about the curse of this particular location in Saipan mm-hmm. that is stumbled upon by our absolutely charming cast of characters. How um, charming. And uh, they have to find a way out of hell. So it's not even hell, though, is it? It's Gehenna. (laughs) It's got its own thing going on. So do we want to talk a little bit about the characters before we get too much into the movie? Yeah, I want to see if you have the same opinion on Paulina's introduction to Aiden. Oh, yeah. Which we first have like a five second clip of her in the ocean where she's like, Jack, where my little baby boy goes in the ocean. My little baby (laughs) boy Little baby bonk seems to be lost to the tides. My boy! Bonk is getting fun. He's scrambling to the ocean depths. But moving on. Yeah, absolutely. So we first start out with Pauline, and uh, she's trying to find her little baby boy. Yeah, been... it's literally just a five second clip of her just like splashing in the ocean, like, which I. Which is supposed to be like a tragic sort of backstory bit to her character, but it's so short. And then it's it's not supposed to like, like, okay, we're cut to her in her like room at the resort. And she's being like very dismissively. She's a sassy professional woman. Yeah. And just like very low key racist. Oh yeah. I totally forgot about that scene with her and the bellhop where she's like. Grassy ass, get the fuck out of my fucking room. Right, and it's fuck like... Fuck you and your pajama dolls. It's very weird as, like, a later plot point. And, like, I'm saying that, like, this low-key racism is very, like... Typical? Like, I think it makes sense for her as a character. <laughs> it but does. They, but they backtrack on it at a later point 
Which is very weird because you're right, you're she's right. very like dismissive of the um, like culture and their practices, and then later attempts to rely on it to escape. Right, especially because she's talking to this guy and he's like he's helped her to her room, and she like very dismissively is like, "Okay, take your money and go." He's like, "Okay, wait, here's some Bajobo dolls. These are for you." And I don't know if we're supposed to also read this as a grift or if it's she is literally dismissive of him. And I could not tell you, like, which is the actual intent. But at the point, he's like, it's for children. She's like, okay, I'll take. Get out. Exactly. <laughs> and then she calls Lance Hendrickson on the phone. Lance Hendrickson? He's been in, like, a bunch of... He's he's pretty prolific. He's been in a bunch of other movies. Yeah, get out much. I just know he's the old man Morgan. Then he's like, yeah, you gotta relax a little bit. You're on vacation. He's delightful. She's he like, is my second favorite character in this oh, movie. Oh, of course. But then she's all like, yes, I'm a hard-nosed corporate businesswoman and feminist icon, Pauline. Sexism is <laughs> over. I'm a strong-willed woman in a movie. And, uh, yeah. The reason I describe her sort of ironically as a feminist icon is that her character is just... She does nothing in this movie, and I... She really doesn't have her own sort of autonomy or ability to kind of do things. She's actually no... She just has no agency, and I I had to sit down with myself and be like... Because I feel like I I default on this, like, a lot. Like, being with, like, in movie spaces, like, okay, do I hate this woman or just not care for her? Because she literally does nothing. I think too is that I feel like they replace her being having agency with her just being kind of a bitch in the beginning. Yeah. Like she just is particularly for one thing, just the way she treats the bellhop is kind of shitty. Mm-hmm. But especially in early interactions with other characters, she's very I guess uncompromising is kind of a generous way to describe it. And maybe not necessarily be inherently bad. Alan is more like charismatic and likable in the beginning. We'll get to Alan. And that's and then when they enter the bunker, things just happen to her. And then her role is literally just being a woman. Yeah. And it's funny because her character becomes like, she becomes so much more in kind of a shitty way. She loses the sort of harshness to her character. And I guess it's maybe to make her more likable and make her more like a central character we should follow to really establish her more as like her heroine. But her character just takes an immediate shift from the abrasiveness of before to being more likable. But again, that likability to her character or is doesn't it come until after she starts being like victimized by the ghouls. Given everyone's victimized by the ghouls, but I actually liked her a lot more before that because it definitely felt like she did. She was like a person as soon as she enters the bunker. As soon as I start undergoing like a horror, well, it's not even that. It's just like somebody needs to needs to take care of Dave. It's her. Someone needs right to. Though. Someone needs uh, horror to happen to a female character to tug at our emotional heartstrings, as, as opposed to physical ones. We need someone for our romantic subplot. Guess who's the only lady in this heteronormative? We landscape. need her to lose her overshirt, so she's running around in her spaghetti strap tank top. Is that a thing that happens? I totally forgot about that. It is, and I, I, I actually wrote this down. I have no idea when this happened. At That's some terrible. point, I just noticed it towards the end. I was like, when did she lose her shirt? It might have been in a the last scene she has with Dave. Let's talk about Dave for a moment. Oh, he, I've written him down in my notes as Saipanaboo Dave. Considering the shirt he got from Tokyo that the two touristy girls are like, he, he, he. You I don't even think on. they're tourists. I think they just like, they're from there, maybe. 
It could, I just figured they might be like either natives or like Japanese tourists, considering Saipan's approximation. And well, also uh, like Japanese people have lived there because it was also Japanese territory. Oh, I guess I don't know a lot about the real life setting of Saipan, so I just assumed because of its proximity to Japan, it may have later turned into a vacation spot, or maybe it does. Anyway. In the movie, it definitely is like a vacation spot, so maybe that's Very what's crazy. happening. But yeah, Dave. Dave's guy. Dave is interesting. I adore certain aspects of the actor and his delivery because it's so hammy. Like, it's so, like, during points in which he's very melodramatically talking about his tragic backstory, Mm -hmm. it's got this sort of intensity, but, like, over so, that comes across as campy, but, like, fun. Like, I find Dave's character... He's pretty pathetic, as a character goes. Just constantly getting bullied by, like, the other dudes. He <laughs> kind of deserves it. Yeah, he is. He is America's number one pervert. <laughs> Look, what the fuck did you expect when you buy, bought a shirt that literally says hentai any portion of the script on it? Well, they explain it with, I'm gonna accidentally call him his nickname I made up for him. Tyler? <laughs> Tyler. My boy Tyler? Foppish love interest Tyler? Sick Robinson. <laughs> Danger, danger, sick Robinson. But you have you have Tyler who who through like really rough exposition in the movie. They're like, oh, yeah. okay, we need to put have a character that knows how to read Japanese. We're gonna have Dave for this shirt, and it makes a good point. Oh, shit, I didn't like, even think about that. That was supposed to be a moment of like this explains why Tyler can do that later in the movie. So. Yeah, Tyler can read Japanese, and that's the whole purpose of the shirt, and it's. Well, that's not the whole purpose. The other purpose is to show that Dave is, like, super gullible, which doesn't really have anything to do outside of the bunker. Right, I mean, I, he's just, like, emotionally soft in a way that's he, not, that the movie seems to think is, like, not great. When, exactly. When juxtaposed to Tyler's softness, quote-unquote. Exactly. I think that definitely makes sense, because Dave is depicted as being soft and vulnerable in a way that seems to signify weakness, whereas... Tyler not being full of machismo seems to be more along the lines of it's a sensitivity and awareness that is lauded. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which is Alan, but uh, we'll be getting to Alan shortly. So, right. any well, other talk- uh, well, it's also interesting because like Tyler's sensitivity is also it completely streamlines into loving Paulina and having this unrequited love. Absolutely. And Let's just talk a little bit more about Tyler and his floppy, stupid hair. Tyler, the man who can do literally everything. He can put bones back into place. He knows how to read Japanese. He uh, he knows how time travel works. <laughs> oh, we don't want to spoil the rest of the movie. But yeah, he knows how time travel works. He can figure out ancient curses in ways that other characters can't, I guess. Tyler, the man who can do literally everything and still look like a fucking dickhead doing it. Yes. I'm literally just biased because I think his hair looks dumb, but it's interesting with Tyler's character because he literally just serves as a foil to Alan for the most part. He really does. And basically to be like, oh, I'm the good guy and Alan's a shitty piece of poo-poo. <laughs> and like, I I will argue this until the day I die, probably. This is, the, this is a very small molehill I'm dying on, but like, I think like literally when you talk about Tyler and you talk about Pauline and Dave. Merge any two of those three characters together, you will have a pretty nuanced and good character to watch. And my, right. my main component would actually be Paulina and Dave. Because 
I don't feel like they really have enough to. They don't really have a leg on their own to stand on. Like once they exactly, get they're the very one dimensional. Because mm-hmm. Dave's whole thing is like, I know about for folklore, and I am constantly scared. Yeah, and like with talking I'm to Paulina, she has this weird thing where like I talked about before. She's very dismissive towards like the bellhop about like right. I just want to build this resort and get the, the fuck out. Exactly. There's that one F word we can't use anymore. Oh, I've already been dropping like plenty. <laughs> I apologize. This is going to be TBMA. <laughs> but, and th- she pulls out out of her ass like a bunch of times later, like, actually, I know all about Saipan. <laughs> I feel like they should have given that more to Dave because Dave, again, is shown to be legitimately interested in the folklore of the people despite also just not giving enough of a shit about it to like respect any of their beliefs and practices until it's literally life or death. I feel like they should have attributed that more like to him. Right. Let me pitch to you my Gehen at fan fiction. Oh, absolutely. Laid on me. So, you merge Pauline and Dave together, and I think what you get is you have this no-nonsense businesswoman who does everything in her power to be like the best in her game. Like She reads up on stuff. She's like a self-made woman because of the tragedies in her past. Either if you have the issue of Dave's sister, or the issue with Paulina's son, Just or even together. both of them. Like, imagine this woman who is so scarred with trauma. She's lost either one person or two very important people in her lives. She has to claw her way to the top in her field, even and like try not to let anything like drag her down. Mm-hmm. So she's she's not necessarily competing with like Tyler, and she's not necessarily competing with Alan, but she needs to prove that she is the best. When you switch over to the bunker, you can have and like, especially when you consider like the love triangle with Tyler, you can have like all these emotional tender moments of like they definitely milk this for its worth later mm-hmm. when she sees tiny baby boy. She sees a tiny baby boy in the in the bunker, and he's all he's all monsterified. He's and imagine goofy. if she saw more of him, or she saw Claire, and like imagine that scene, you know, with like Dave, right? Mm-hmm. Dave and Paulina are in that one part. And she's comforting him. Imagine if that was Tyler and Paulina. I feel like that would have given more death where he's like desperately trying to like hold back his unrequited feelings for her. I didn't feel like that would have been. And like, he's, tra- he's trying to swallow it so he can like properly take care of her. And then like they can like do another like little hand kiss thing because <laughs> when they have it at the very end, that's a whole other beast. We'll have to get into that bit, that bit mm-hmm. a little bit later, but uh. But I think it would have, like, actually made that weird love triangle thing stand. Even if you have, like, Paulina and Alan, Alan shows, like, an unexpected side. Or if he's just, like, she she's relying on him to give her that emotional support. And he's like, all I care about is money and cents. <laughs> Dollars and cents. We did point that out when I was watching that. I did that. write down that exact line. is me. I prefer to speak in dollars and cents. And money charms for every time. <laughs> But I I am am listening to my notes as ambiguously Australian now. Wipe it in the dollar bill. (laughs) So I feel like it's a perfect segue to start talking about Alan. Because, again, you were talking about, like, sort of the dynamic between Pauline and Tyler and sort of the flatness of those characters. And I definitely agree that if you did take characters like Pauline and Dave and just made it one character, you would get a depth that you don't really see with them otherwise. Speaking of a lack of depth, um, Alan doesn't really 
cavity himself again. But he's loud enough to like pretend. You can pretend he does. He's loud, obnoxious, ambiguously Australian, and like fits a very capitalist like he's very sort of much colonial settler sort of like mold that the character or like the movie's trying to portray of like it, oh this is the white man coming in and despoiling like, nature. Yeah, he's literally Crikey. just like this corporate. Just like, just like, you remember well, like Captain Planet? Planet is that mold. Yeah, <laughs> he's literally just a guy. He's just one of the bad guys from Captain Planet. It's not even like on the headlands. Like, there's a talk to be had here about like how this movie portrays like multiple levels of like colonialism when it used to be like Spanish territory and then Japanese territory and is now like a U.S. Commonwealth that is mostly mm-hmm. used for like tourism. He owns the land, and Paulina is trying to like. She's considering buying it from him for like development. How did he get that in the first place? <laughs> I that does not Alan just not necessarily something that needs answered. I'll say, but with dollars and cents, <laughs> that's how he caught it with dollars and cents. I wish, I kind of wish either that or like there was a bigger scale of like how Mister Capitalism he is. Like, what is the scope of his wealth? What is the scope of his like complacency or active like? racism and colonizing in this I, because literally yeah. it's, it's supposed to be that he owns the land he bullies around this native assistant that he has <laughs> i i will say i think i know we probably need to talk a little bit more about alan but i think that does segue into a little bit about pepe well it's really Ooh. hard to kind of separate both of them in the beginning exactly because i think his interactions with pepe do sort of speak a bit to how he got to where he is and the kind of person he is. Because with poor Pepe, Pepe Pepe. is just, we'll just use this to kind of talk about Pepe a little bit. Mm -hmm. Pepe's character is so, it fluctuates so greatly. I watched this with my roommate and friend, Kevin, Mm -hmm. and my fiance, Will. And uh, Will made a joke about just, what's going on, Pepe? What genre are you in? <laughs> because the depiction of Pepe and his character fluctuates so wildly. And I know part of that is based on part of the plot of the movie, but his character is confused in that he he goes from having moments of being sort of snarky and he's a little... Like, comedy. He's really like comic relief. He is, towards the beginning. And he has a degree of articulateness. Here's one thing I would just want to touch on real quick. It... Something that comes across as flagrantly, like, racist to me is just the depiction of people from Saipan. Like, again, I'm not super familiar with the country, but I'm sure they're more articulate than just, like, he go to tunnel. And the thing with Pepe, he bounces between, like, having a degree of articulateness and self-awareness to fuck with Dave when it comes (laughs) to, like, the ancient folklore and stuff. But then, shortly after they're in the bunker... And even moments off and on slightly before, like when Dave is the drone and Pepe just keeps trying to poke at it, he he comes across as a buffoon, like a caricature buffoon who is literally like, oh, the drone, oh, we go see the drone. And like, he, he, he goes from being like a character to just being an inarticulate mess. And it comes right. across and as- it's, it's really rough because like, I feel like a lot of... <sighs> A lot of things about Pepe, I'm going to very generously say, are unintentionally racist. Like, I'm, I'm willing it's unintentional. I'm, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. It, it but also, like, like, I'm, uh, like, I'm super white, and I don't know enough about, like, that's true. The, I guess. the creative decisions made, but, like, and it's, it's interesting given, like, 
it because it seems well intended since the movie itself has an inherent tone of anti-colonialism so it makes you want to believe that the depiction of the folks from Saipan yeah. is just a consequence of ignorance. See, this is where you get into, like, muddy territory, right? Because, like, it, in all good intentions, doesn't matter if you can't make good on them, because, like, it's still a Japanese-American production. Mm-hmm. And then we... And so, like, these experiences, like, the director and the the scriptwriter, um, who, as I understand, I think his name is Brian Palmer, I want to say, he was involved a lot with, like, helping with, like, mm-hmm. making the the film. You have these experiences that, like, color the movie in particular ways. And then you have this additional layer outside of, like, the movie's narrative when you talk about, like, the Kickstarter stuff. Where, mm-hmm. like, at some point you're talking about, like, this, like, merchandise possibilities. Mm-hmm. And Hiroshi Katagiri is saying, like, hey... Would you like some limited edition of the Jobo dolls? And he says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this is just like really offensive stuff." Like he really hypes up like the mysticism of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it first of all, it's just gross to be like, "Ah, oh, yeah, we're gonna use this this native like symbol of spiritualism and commercialize it." I will say, yeah. Well, then, and then especially to like take it to the level of like, "Oh, we're just gonna hype it up also." Right. For a movie about anti-colonial. Right, exactly. And I will say, like, yeah, it's pretty reprehensible. I will say it's nothing new from what... Absolutely, it's yeah. nothing new. But it, it's just, like, a stark contrast between, like, the movie's intent and, like... What they did with it. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Now, since we've kind of gone into the characters, let's take a little bit more of a look at the movie. I know we discussed the premise. So, the movie really gets going... I mean, there's a little bit of character introduction and exposition when they first arrive in Saipan. But where the movie really picks up is the secluded little part where they find this bunker that we've been alluding to. The bunker is a, what they believe at first should just be a World War II gunnery nest or like cannon nest. Gun nest. Gun nest. And they find themselves there after, you know, yelling at a couple of natives, including a caricature of a old shaman man who's like respect your ancestors and then hobbles away they go down into the gunnery nest and uh turns out to be a full-on bunker so the bunker is where the movie really gets most of its plot from including foiling the entire premise of the bunker and gehenna itself within the first 20 to 30 minutes um so well, it inherently i mean I feel like if you're very genre savvy, I feel like I'm pretty genre savvy in the sense that like my brain can't help but like notice, notice like narrative patterns. I'm like, okay, should we just go ahead and spoil like the quote unquote twist right now? Because the thing is, I understand that so we're absolutely not taking this to t- like through the motions. We're kind of just talking about it like very lately, so I don't yeah. mind. Okay, so here's one thing we want to spoil that I want to spoil um, because. The thing is, they try and turn it into, like, a fun twist towards the end, but I feel like it's so heavily foreshadowed and so blatantly so. It doesn't come across as a twist. It comes across as the movie explaining to me shit that I already know, and it sort of makes me feel a little insulted. But basically, they go into the bunker. They find that it's all worn down and decrepit. They run into a ghoul. Um, a ghoul? A ghoul. A ghoul? And it turns out... um. They actually can't get out after this ghoul encounter. 
And they've been sent back in the past for well, it's, 70 years. It's important to notice that they also see a bunch of skeletons before they see this ghoul. Yes, and the skeletons of things like, oh, there's an old smashed up camera that would not have existed during World War II. And, uh, oh, Paul- do they really point that out? Because <laughs> Yes, I, they have an old smashed up camera. And one of the things the Pauline, or Paulina, I always forget which one it is. Polly Shore. Polly Shore. Polly Shore finds the corpse of a woman who's wearing slacks, which again... They point out that it wouldn't have been common for a woman to have been in, like, a Japanese military bunker. And Women two, didn't wear slacks in the 40s. I mean, I thought that was such a dumb comment, but as soon as they said that, I'm like, ah, shit, that's Polly Shore's corpse. Which, you know, spoiler alert, t- turns out to be. But anyway, yeah, turns out the whole thing for Gehenna is a big old time loop. I actually didn't expect that. Oh, I, I literally have notes. I even timestamped them for, like, it's 30 minutes into this, like, hour and 45 minute long movie. Mm-hmm. Where we first really get into the stuff of, like, they first really get into the bunker and exploring. I called that, like, immediately. Because, see, I didn't honestly come into it thinking it was time loop stuff. And even though Augie was taunting me the whole time about it being, like, time loop stuff, I was like... Maybe I'm just too genre-savvy, but... Yeah, and I was like, I think I'm genre-savvy in, like, a different way. Because, like, I got most of the story beats up until that, and, like... I've played too much 999. I think, honestly... I was more just, like, impressed with that. I probably didn't look at it too critically. Whereas, like, yeah, I just really like this scene where you have, like, this ghoul come up, just, like, shambling along really fast. Oh, my God. I have so much talk about the ghoul. So, basically, you know, they get into the bunker. They find it's an old World War II bunker. Find corpses, smashed up camera. Um, And then we talk about the transitioning point is where they run to the school. I want to talk about the ghoul. The ghoul... Is 75% shambly marionette mm-hmm. and 25% Doug Jones. Basically, the shambly creature comes up to him and it's a man. And he's like, you must die. And it's your fault, Pauline. Except less articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after they run into him, Alan ends up smacking him against the wall. Brain in the poor sucker. They attempt to escape after and find the bunker is sealed. Mm-hmm. They then wake up. All the lights are working. It's not in disrepair. And the little ghoul man's gone. I do want to say that, like, um, with, like, the little ghoul man, he's eaten, like, he's been eating, like, all these, like, Japanese rations. Yeah, he's... (laughs) And I want to know how... It's like the original Steve 1989. Man, my real loving friends will know that one. Are they all pop-tops? How did he get in them? Um, And obviously some cans are left over that he didn't get into. Probably a little can opener. Because, I mean, a lot of, like, the... like if it's in the dark, he's not going to know where it is. He just knows what a can feels like. He's had a long, long time to, like, feel around. Maybe he pried it open with a little stabby knife. He doesn't even wander around. He stays in, like, the same two rooms. Yeah, but, like, there's probably a knife in there somewhere. It's fine. That's the point of the movie. And I'm going to, like, that's the hell you're going to die on. Yeah, how, we, how we open all those cans? He doesn't need to eat. He yeah. doesn't need to eat, but he wants to. Because what else are we going to fucking do when you're sitting in a bunker for 70 years in the dark? Yeah, how are we going to get the bunker? But he through so many. For 70 years. He's so bored. He's so bored and all he can do is eat and sit in the dark. He's 
the movie, he spends, like, maybe a whole year trying to figure out how to open up a can that doesn't have a pop-top. Like, he's, like, let's assume, like, ten years in, he's already emaciated. He's already this ghoul. He's yeah, just, like, flailing his, his little and we will get in, Almagara full arms around. And we will get into why, like, he could go ten years without eating, because that's a plot point for a little bit later. Oh, we've already been spoiling everything. I know. Turns out that it's... Uh, we'll we'll just get into that as we organically talk about the plot, but yeah. Little ghoul man, little... Oh my god, when are you, but you tell me he's just flailing about, like, he just smacks it against a concrete wall for, like, a, at least, like, a year straight before it opens, and, like, just, like, the slop of, like, old rice and beans probably just, like, flops onto the floor. He's like, sustenance! <laughs> Nutrients! More meat! <laughs> That's how I want to believe it happened now. <laughs> but the thing is, you clearly see before the time skip a bunch of cans in the corner that have been like actually open. It is a lot of cans. He, look, man, he's had seventy years to eat all that food. Maybe he like rationed it out like a grain of rice a day or something. <laughs> he was that fucking bored. It's very hard to talk about this without like actually alluding to the spoiler. But like, he's also actively eating a can. How much? There's obviously not supplies for 70 years, and you can even see the cans like, okay, he definitely did not get through 70 years worth of cans. Right, that's probably like but, a year. <laughs> he spends, he either doesn't eat that often where he spends so much time trying to open one <laughs> can, and he just succeeded, like, after the lights turned on, maybe, because, like, and he's like, how much? He's been in there for 70 years. Like, he, his sight's all gone to shit. Oh, yeah. We, we get a fun little POV cam from the, the ghoul at the end. But, yeah. So, essentially, they're running in the school. We've talked a lot about the ghoul. God, the ghoul looks... I will say, there's certain effects in the movie that look good. The ghoul does not. Because, again, when the ghoul runs up to Alan, our boy, our fucking asshole... I don't know what you're talking about. Category did a wonderful job. I... The thing is, though, like, the ghoul looks spooky. Mm-hmm. But he does look a little it, bit of a scary puppet when he starts well, shambling towards. Yeah, when he shambles towards Alan, you can tell it's very obviously like a marionette. It's a spooky looking marionette, but it doesn't convincingly look like a person. Yeah, and then in order to like get the face of a person, they've got Doug Jones in makeup just from like the neck up, which again is goofy to me. Because mm-hmm. when you see him before that, he's just a little—he's a little goober man. He's a little tiny skeletal goober man, and it cracked me the fuck up. Kevin pointed out a bit where. As Alan is wrestling with him, you can tell it's still a marionette because the ghoul is supposed to be speaking and like growling at him with the mouth that move at all. And he's as well, the also, very... like the way I like, I'm it like it stuck out to me is the torso doesn't really move, yeah, it's got because no, it's like, all solid, exactly. Like, it's so, not even like a soft body where you'd even see like maybe the shoulders moving as Alan's like grabbing him and like being like, ah, it's a ghoul. Ah. Fuck you. Bam. Um, It's just very rigid and like fake and goofy looking to me. Doug Jones in the makeup is pretty cool though. Um, But yeah, after that, they find themselves stuck in the bunker. All the lights are on. All of the previous shambly distressed state of the place is mostly clean. And pretty much all of the bodies they put. All the cans are neatly Exactly, my little ghoul. Um, so then they come to discover that they just can't get the fuck out of this bunker and they start figuring out ways to do so. And then they begin to discover that the bunker has a spooky little secret and that's called Gehenna. Because the bunker is also 
Because the bunker is also on top of like a ceremonial burial ground where a particular yeah, like a chief a chieftain of some very he was buried underground his princess is buried above ground which how the fuck does that lore actually tie into the rest of like because here's the thing with the Gehenna with the Gehenna <laughs> with the Gehenna with the Gehenna um it's supposed to be like a place where you're trapped for hell. But they mentioned the Bajoba dolls. The Bajoba dolls only really have the significance of being, like, related to the whole burial ground thing. Well, there's the whole thing with, like, okay, we we go back earlier to where Pepe is kind of telling off the the older guy and, like, the, the face the old off man. Mask. The older man, like, drops, like, the Princess Bajoba doll off. And they scoop it up. Yeah. And then, well, actually, Dave picks it up. Because Dave's like, this is mine now, but... <laughs> Haunted at the gift shop and get me some anime. <laughs> I'm gonna get my little waifu. <laughs> this is my new little waifu. There's just like a Miku <laughs> Nendoroid in the gift shop for no reason. Oh my god. It's... Or like, a, I just want to see like a Bajoba version of a little like Miku. Oh god. God bless. Anyway, continue. So Dave picks it up. They go through. Uh, Dave dropped it, and then Dave does this very good expositioning thing of, like, talking about how the chieftain's buried down here, and so is his Bajobo doll. And then Dave later is, like, on his death shelf. <laughs> shelf is... <laughs> they, they just slap him into some shelving, and they're just like... <laughs> to be fair, those are actual... Those are supposed to be, like, the actual constant beds. Probably made Oh, like, okay. Things. I was supposed like, to that later it looks like Oh no, it's just a really shitty little bed. Oh, okay. So they slap like him onto his bed. deathbed and he's like, hey. Because he breaks his ankle. After seeing a ghoul. Literally all of this is see. happening because the chieftain is, has been so angered about like the colonization and like they tore away his love from him. So you have to reunite the dolls. Uh, and then you have the whole thing later with like Paulina, she's trying to get the Princess Bajoba doll to Pepe, who's become the witness and is protected by like his ancestral. His ancestors. Want to get into. And they're like, and she's like, now they can be together. All this can so stop. Pepe's like, fuck you. Not even that. It's it, Alan comes in and he destroys. He like I think he, he Alan, clocks Pepe. Yeah, Alan either clocks Pepe and like I think one of the dolls is destroyed. So like Pepe's. Like perpetuating the anger of the spirit of the chieftain. Yeah, and I want to say the, the movie. I don't feel like the movie portrays like this anger as like rational and as deserving. It, you you're supposed to feel very sympathetic for Paulina and Alan because like listen like this is so much generational anger because like Saipan has been colonized three times as far as I know. So imagine all this weight on your soul on your shoulders as a person and like. Knowing you have to be the conduit between like the physical world and your ancestral spirits, and then and the baggage you also carry of living generations after them and seeing yeah, like the trauma that you just naturally have after like living in a environment where like it's a place you will always be yours, seen as but lesser. Out- exactly, like you're seeing you're being seen as being lesser by people who came in and made the place their own when it wasn't their take in the first place. Right, and then the movie treats Pepe as, like, irrational for being, like, no mercy or whatever, as he, as, like, Alan destroys the other doll, so he destroys the other other one and traps and condemns these people, which, yeah. honestly, they, they deserve. Yeah. 
I mean, maybe not them as people. Well, I wouldn't say them as people. Like, I can understand the sort of anti-colonialism sort of message of it, and I can appreciate. And they're all. It's it's kind of a hard line to dissect because they're all complicit in particular ways, right? Like they were gonna develop this land into a resort. Which is pretty scummy and capitalist. I mean, I guess not the third I mean, and like we get to know them better as characters a little bit as we go corporate and capitalist, but yeah. I mean, same difference. But like we get to know them a little bit better as like both people and characters as we go through the movie. So like I kind of get the hesitation because Pauline and Tyler and Dave are technically good people. They're just cogs in this like this horribly like racist capitalist machine. Alan's not a good person. I think the movie is wrong to portray Pepe as Pepe and like this anger and like to be like I do see it as a little bit of righteous fury though. Like. I feel like to a certain extent they depict it in a way that is they definitely depict I feel like they definitely depict it as like irrational, like, oh, these yeah. people should have been able to get out and deserve to. Which I don't know if I necessarily agree with, but the I, movie yeah. seems to disagree with. I have mixed feelings about it. So kind of an overall summary of what we've like talked about in terms of the plot. Basically they get to the bunker, they find they've been time looped back to seventy years ago. Um, and basically ghouls start showing up and characters start dying. Pepe, like we mentioned, becomes ensorcelled by the spirit. He becomes a witness. Yeah. Because there always has to be a witness to the events happening. Exactly. Basically, this is all perpetuated by what we talked about earlier. Gehenna is based on a location where in response and righteous anger to the Spanish that were colonizing the place, um, they placed a curse on it. So there must be always someone that is there to suffer. Um, First, it's a Spanish conquistador. Yeah, Don um, Rodrigo. Then he's dug up by um, Japanese soldiers who are in the World War II bunker. Right. Um, and then we meet the the officer who becomes the witness. Exactly. And then we have our characters dealing with the ghouls and stuff. Because basically, if you have more than one person there, you start getting cooled, killed off by ghouls and hallucinations of things that like make you miserable or bring you guilt. Like, for example, with Dave... It's his random sister who died in an ambiguous accident that he may or may not have had anything to do with. Yeah, it's it's also very weird. And like, Pauline sees her like dead boy from the five seconds of exposition that we got before the movie started. Tyler sees a random woman who I think is they literally give no context to that. I am wondering if it's either like his mom or if it's like his idea of Paulina rejecting him. Or, like, Maybe. becoming monsters because he has all of his hallucinations or, like, the Do stuff happens to Do you deal directly with Pauline? Yeah. Like, for example, there's a scene that comes off more as, like, gaslighting than an actual hallucination. But Yeah, Alan's trying to, like, just kind of... Er, there's, like, a scene where, like, he's trying to comfort Paulina and Alan, Alan comes in. He's, and, like, touching on her titties even though she literally is just talking about the trauma of losing her son. And yeah. he's like, I fucked it. What you gonna do about it, Tyler? And then Tyler's like, fuck you, man! And then Alan and Paul and you're like, whoa, dude, like, he didn't say anything. That was weird, because that came off, like, that was also weird, because I just felt like that was regular Alan. (laughs) Yeah, because that's the thing, like, that depiction of Alan's character at that point, because he goes from being just sort of coarse and abrasive to, like, a murderous asshole, because he believes it's the only way he can assure his escape and survival, because eventually they get into the lore of, like, they confirm that only one person can survive and be a witness, and he wants that to be him so that he can find a way to escape. Well, he doesn't even know that. He only knows, like, the general refrain of, like, only one can live. He takes that to assume, like, he's the only one that's alive, he's the survivor, and he 
can leave. He doesn't understand like the witnessing part behind it. Tyler's the one that figures out and that's why Tyler's like shares this knowing glance of Paulina and telepathically beams this information into her brain. (laughs) Because it's never directly explained to her either. She just seems to understand after they're like, To be fair, to be fair, it becomes very apparent to the audience shortly after Pepe's whole spiel and like him becoming the witness, which involves him seeing the ghost of his mom and him carving shit into his chest and him getting like Terminator powers. Well, the thing that makes Pepe different from like the other witnesses from Don Rodrigo, from the Japanese officer and from the next witness is that Pepe is from Saipan and that he is rather than like a witness that suffers, he is a witness who is supposed to witness and like he is protected by his ancestral spirits. So that's why like they have a bunch of they have a bunch of scenes where he is like deflecting any blow that can come to him. Yeah. Oh, the he does like he does some like self mutilation, but I think that's more to like drive home that like nothing can fuck up this dude until it does. But yeah, um, eventually it gets to the point where Alan starts murdering everyone because he's like, hey, that's the only way that I can survive and escape. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it ends up as you slowly go more into the movie, you get more of the lore about the bunker, the fact that it's this like basically hell that there's one person who always has to survive and like carry that on with them. We get more into Dave ends up dying because he's killed by him. Basically, if you hallucinate stuff, you end up killing yourself. He ends up hallucinating his sister strangling him, and he ends up, like, strangling himself with camera equipment or something. Then we get to where... Well, he, he does that the first time, and then it happens, I think, like, a second time and off Right. It's not sure how he does it. God, they just totally forget about Dave after that until, like, he's actually dead, which is kind of fucking hysterical to me. But, uh... Again, then like, this could have been solved out. so easily with just, like, merging two of the characters. Exactly. But Pauline also starts to figure out, hey, maybe if we reunite the Jova dolls, because all this seems to originate from the pain of the chieftain from being separated from his bride because of the evil colonizers. Mm-hmm. So she tries to reconcile and reunite him. Alan is like, hey, if I'm the last person standing, that means I can get out of here. So he attempts to foil Pauline's efforts. He stabs Tyler because he's like, only one only one. And then he fucking baps Pauline with a shovel. And he ends up destroying a Bajoba doll. And then Pepe, in retaliation, destroys the other one. And they have a knockout, drag out brawl where Pepe gets clubbed a couple times with a shovel. And the makeup effects for that are actually fucking stunning. They kind of grossed me out. They were oh, so it was, good. It, it was legitimately good. Like, that in the face ripping off scene from the very beginning with the conquistador and the ancient ritual. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought those were legitimate, like, high points. Um, Especially with, like, Pepe get an eye that's like bulging out at one it's point it's so gross especially like there's another scene where like his face is all mushed up yeah, yeah where, like, like right before he actually dies and I love Pepe's fuck you scene where he's like yeah, you win boss you can be the witness now and I think it's kind of I hate everything that happens to Pepe because Pepe and Mike Stinch's Sean Sprawling deserved a better movie to be oh in. absolutely and then um because ba- again he's basically just boiled down to a sort of like very flat just a bunch of stereotypes. I'm exactly. Like, it's it sucks that he gets more agency and like quote unquote death. Like mm-hmm. after like his his mother cool. shows up and is like, 
therefore I have the right to kill you since I birthed you. Which is raw as shit. I love that line so <laughs> it's much. It's literally the whole, like, I brought you into this world, now I'm going to take you out of it. But, like, after his technical, like, death, as a witness, you don't die, but he undergoes, like... A transformation. A, yeah, I, I think it's accurate to call it, like, a death. Where he offends. Yeah. Interesting to note as well that Pepe doesn't seem to really want to, like, hurt anyone else. He's just there to, like, be kind of goofy. And yeah, uh, it, demonically possessed, or spiritually possessed. Right, and, like, it, Pepe's fuck you scene with Alan is like very good and I but like it also sucks in this particular way that like did he know the whole time that like this is gonna happen or is he just prepared to witness forever because he gets he gets particular like, powers as a witness because he because like he's carrying like all of this Right. I feel like the sort of intent was he could have been like the last witness standing, but, but Alan's did he, hubris was... Did he know, though? Did like did he know the whole time that like that Alan was going to be the one, or did he realize that like, the last like, moment? I think it sort of implies that like he was aware that because of who Alan is, mm-hmm. Alan eventually would have gone down that road, because Alan is also sort of an ex before like the, the Spanish conquistador and... A Japanese officer. Exactly. So I think it's less of like he may have consciously known, or maybe that's less of what the movie is trying to tell us, but more of like Alan is a perpetuator of a cycle of kind of like generational like abuse almost. Um, Just like violence. Exactly. He's a perpetuator of this violence. So it was sort of inevitable that he would be the one. So basically what happens is Alan, in his hubris, becomes the witness without necessarily realizing what that means. And, um, like, Tyler and Pauline seem to realize what's happening. So well, he doesn't become the witness until after Tyler and Pauline are like, ha oh boy, you done did it now. You messed up. Exactly. Because you, but you. Exactly. Because um, Tyler and Pauline seem to come to an understanding of what it means to be the witness. Because, again, you see the Japanese officer, they read his diary, they find out, you know, what it means to be a witness, especially because the Japanese officer explicitly says, hey, I tried to kill myself. Um, and I can't die. Guess can't make amends. My life isn't good enough for that. Stibbity stabbity. Why isn't it working? <laughs> Stibbity stabbity. Why isn't it working? <laughs> yeah. And he even goes to the point of like, when they, they find him pretty early on when they're in the bunker after the time loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shoots himself because then he realizes, holy shit, I can be free now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so- it, and they do mention before that like when the Japanese officer is in there and they are carving out like the gun nest bunker into like an actual living space to like hunker down in during like the battle. They run into the Spanish conquistador. Yeah, and they shovel him. So yeah, at that point. They'd read the diary because Alan at this point is just like, fuck you guys. And I and I mentioned this earlier, like, Tyler just seems to telepathically beam this information. Into yeah, Pauline. Pauline's just like, shoot me now, baby, I love you, I love you too, bit bat, you're dead, and Tyler's bleeding out because Alan shanked him earlier. And then Tyler seems to be really aware of how much time he has left just based on how much blood's coming out of his fucking kidney. It's so Liver. funny, like, because he, like, he takes the bandages off, and Will was joking that it looks like he's just sort of, like, shuffling around his wound to get as much blood <laughs> yeah, out of his So we can time it perfectly and be like, fuck you, Alan. <laughs> Alan sort of gropes his own pudge from where he got shot earlier in the scene. And I hate- Oh, me chub! I hated laughing at this because, like, it's very easy to play, like, fat bodies for comedy. And especially with, like, they're just, like, it's just a normal amount of human fat. Well, I mean, with, like, Alan, it's, it, I don't know, it's just, like, my knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, I don't want to laugh at this because it feels gross to me on, like, this particular level, especially, like, when you, just because, like, the general dehumanization of, like, fat bodies. 
Like, as right. like, oh yeah, we're just gonna focus on the tummy. That's where the fat is. I but it's still very she... funny. Because like... he's just like, slip, 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 slip. And, he... and that, I know that's not the focus for Alan's scene, but I couldn't help but feel like kind of gross laughing at it. Oh, I I get what you mean. I will say, though, I don't think the intent was to be like, hey, it definitely fat. It definitely like, was like, not. It was just like, we- just weird It was funny. Because like, like, okay, basically, Alan gets shot. After Tyler dies, he becomes the next witness. Um, Which means his gun shot's healed and he gets to live forever until someone else comes along that can die. He has a gunshot wound in his side and you see him just lift up a shirt, like, take a roll, like, he's got like this kind of media haunch on his side from it, where it's his little on top. And he's just like, Oi, I'm kid! Oi, I'm kid, guy! <laughs> that's, that's British, not Australian, but I, I, I can't do either. But uh, yeah, it turns out he was the ghoul all along. Cause he gets stuck in the blender for seven years. <laughs> it's so funny because like the way they frame it is, um, they show this. It's funny because like they're like the final nail in the coffin that it's him is that it turns out the ghoul has a tattoo on his arm. <laughs> yeah, and they literally the they literally only show it at like minute one thirty of like a one fifty minute movie that Alan has this dollar sign tattoo, and then at like ten minutes later, literally I have this time marked, they show the old guy also has the dollar sign tattoo. It's so dumb because it was so obvious from the very beginning of when they established that it was likely a time loop that like it was Alan that was the sole survivor. Because for example, in the corpses you see before the time loop actually occurs, um the two corpses in the hallway, there's Pauline wearing slacks next to the only character she's shown having any sort of love interest connection with. I mean, Alan, it's a little bit like ambiguous, but Tyler is, they really ham it up as like, she he's the love interest. Mm-hmm. And Dave is just wherever the fuck he, Dave is. See, I think, like, I assumed it immediately was Alan, and especially it makes mm-hmm. sense because the ghoul, they kind of go back to the very beginning where the ghoul jumps Alan, Alan beams him, but the ghoul is like, you must die because he's telling Alan, hey, you gotta die. Don't let me live like this for the next 70 years. It's a close time loop. Send help. But <laughs> Will was also joking that, like, I think it's a close time loop until someone else comes. Exactly. But the thing and, is, and it like, also raises a question, like, is Alan the only one subjected to this time loop? Do, is Alan, does the time loop only keep going until someone else comes in? Or is Alan the last, like, link in the chain? And, and he just Or does everyone else go through their own time loop? repeatedly until exactly. someone else it's weird along. that it brings up the whole time loop angle because that is literally not a thing at any other point in it's the cycle so useless to like the movie as a whole like they they literally set it up just so it can be kind of a fun twist at the end but the thing is the movie assumes we're about as stupid as alan is because alan at the very end needs basically the entire premise of the cursed exposition to him mm-hmm. um and then they do shortly after that the reveal that it was all a time loop, which is something that, like, he doesn't believe, but another character explains, like, earlier. But, like I said, I feel like the movie explains, like, the movie treats the audience about the same way they treat Alan, in that we're all big old dum-dums who couldn't have figured that out from contextual clues that were super obvious that they brought in, like, 20 minutes into the movie. And there's so many things about the movie that, like, really treats you as dumb. Like, it literally presents its thesis an hour in with Dave saying, like, in the end... Do you think we have to pay for our sins when he's like wrapped uh, yeah. up in a blanket? And I'm like, I guess, buddy, I should have watching this movie. 
Dave really, like, it's such a, like, ham-fisted, out-of-nowhere line, and I loved it. Now that we've kind of got through, in a little bit of a jumbled way, we, we've kind of talked about the entirety of the movie. It's Baby's first podcast. I want to say, just like as a, like for the whole movie, dialogue is so puzzling because it only serves to connect, like, point A to point B. And, like, when you're talking about communication, I don't, like, I don't want to, like, launch into, like, a whole diatribe about, like, oh, how intricate it is and how there's no actual, like, starting and ending point. But, like, when you take, like, the first 15 minutes of the, if you take the first 15 minutes of, like, the movie, it's so weird because, like, it's like, oh, here's this thing I can, here's my Shekhov's gun, and here's my Shekhov's gun. Pachoo, pachoo! (laughs) I'm no wielding bitches! (laughs) And, like, it's... It's so, like, ham-fisted. Like, we're literally just saying these things so it can come up later. And this happens even, like, it happens a little bit less after they get into, like, the gun mess slash bunker. But it it still is prevalent through the whole thing, except for, and I want to say generally most of, like, Pepe's lines I don't feel like come off this way, only because he's supposed to be, like, the comedic relief. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, there's generally one line I really like for him, because, like, after they find out, like, they're locked in, he is, like, talking to himself, and everyone's like, what's that? And they turn to him and was like, oh, it was me, I was praying. And he's, <laughs> it's very cute, because the sub, I'm, like, the subtitles pick this up, and he's like, God bless Paulina, and God bless Tyler, God, God bless Dave. It's very... <laughs> It's very it's soft like, and cute. Um, and like, because it seems like also genuine. very funny, but also like that dialogue like had a purpose, even if it was to no one in particular. Like, okay, we learn more about him as a character, and like, like he actually is a little bit superstitious, despite a lot of the movie he spends, at least prior to becoming like possessed, mm-hmm. he spends a lot of the movie trying to rebuke the the sort of association with him with his like homeland and the way his. It's not even rebuking. It's like you know, like when you're like an ex-evangelical you i feel like most ex-evangelicals have like this very like trying to be a cool atheist phase Mm -hmm. it's kind of like that in a weird way where like oh he's working for like these white people and there's definitely like this whole through line for the movie of like oh yeah i'm modern unlike the the other natives as i pan who believe in all these traditions and the superstitions Mm -hmm. like the like the praying is like a really good point of like he does believe in this stuff Mm -hmm. and he's like hiding his true nature just so he can like make some of that dosh yeah and just like also be seen as acceptable that's true it just sucks that like so much of the dialogue is just like oh this very matter of fact thing Oh, it's this very matter-of-fact thing. Like a Right. It seems like a lot of the dialogue is engineered, and I guess this is sort of redundant in the context of your point, but a lot of the dialogue almost comes across as, like, being too purposeful, in that it seems almost entirely engineered. Well, no one can have a natural conversation. Like, exactly. Like, it always have to have, has to have some ulterior motive or purpose for the sake of the movie, instead of just... It's, having an organic sort of flow to it. And not even that it has, like, an ulterior motive. Like, the ulterior motive, like, you're prescribing is, like, or describing, is, like, that is the only motive. Mm-hmm. Like, the only reason, like, Paulina is talking to Dave is to reveal that, like, oh, it's a ghost hallucination of his sister. The only reason that uh, Pepe is, like, you win, boss, at the end is, like, uh, yeah, you're the witness now, bud. Mm-hmm. And, like... America's number one pervert is just to like show that Dave is gullible and goofy. Yeah. Dave is gullible and that Tyler knows how to reach Japanese. Exactly. 
Now, moving on from that point, let's briefly also touch on, because our runtime is getting a little long here, but let's briefly touch on some things that we did like, though, about the movie. Because one thing I will re-kind of iterate, some of the makeup effects are really good. Not so much for stuff like the drowned son, Jake, or whatever his Jake. name was. Jack. Jake. Jack. Jack. Jack, 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 Jack. Um, his makeup looked pretty bad. Claire, though, I, I thought didn't was think his makeup looked bad. I thought like all like the scary like monster makeup looked like really good, especially Claire. Claire looked really horrifying until they show her like on top of like Dave strangling him. Yeah, um, I thought that was a little bland, but I thought her like little ghoul walk and her face then looked really good. Mm-hmm. Additionally, again, I've said it before, but Pepe's like gory makeup after getting fucking shoveled that was. Ah, oh, moi. That was legitimately like unsettling. A little chef's kiss. My compliments to Dr. Katagiri. Mwah. He's not a doctor. <laughs> what are you eating at this <laughs> resort at this island? Pajoba dolls. <laughs> but I think also something that's worth noting is the way it does monster encounters or horror encounters is kind of nice because. While it does have a couple moments of being jump scary, I feel like it attempts to do more with like, very, tension and atmosphere. They're very, it's definitely more about atmosphere. And I feel like the jump scares were very low key. Exactly. I made a time mark where I actually jumped at one. It's literally the one where Jack shows up for the last time. I'm like, Mommy! And it's so funny. Like, after the fact, because it's so reverbed. It is! Oh my god, they did the same reverb effect in something else that... I feel like they did the same reverb reverb effect in Binding of Isaac when you fight, like, your horribly distended mother's body parts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's exactly what that was. It like, is, the exact same reverb. But, like, it definitely... I feel like it definitely is more about, like, Which I appreciate. Right. Which is, like... It's no bitch, but like the bitch, it definitely carries itself like pretty well, and exactly. I think that's why I've watched this movie like three times. Exactly. So let's kind of wrap things up here. Um, would you recommend the Gehenna? The Gehenna, where the where the death lives. <laughs> Exactly. What what would you say, like, I, I don't know that we necessarily are going to have, like, a straight-up rating system, but what are your final thoughts? Would you recommend Gehenna? What are we, we kind of looking at here? If you love dumb time loop stuff, and I'm saying this in the context that naturally all time loop stuff is dumb, if you love really dumb time loop stuff, I think Gehenna's worth a watch. Gehenna's really worth a watch, like, going into, like, talking about, like, practical effects mm-hmm. and like special effect makeup. I want to say it's worth something on the scale of like bad movies to like say like, oh, what not to do. But I think it's prevailingly like it nails a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It, I think it really does a lot with like the atmosphere and with like the the Kickstarter like budget they had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And I think like there's so many components of this movie that you can utilize if you break it down. Mm-hmm. But like as a whole movie, if you're just going to like watch it, it's all right. Exactly. Here's my take on it is Gehenna is by no means a perfect movie. In many ways, it's not particularly good, especially in the way it handles the core message and the characters. Because yeah. the characters range from being, again, in the case of Pepe, terrible like amalgamations of stereotype to extremely one-dimensional to, you know, ham-fisted. But I think it's an entertaining watch. Because I think some of the aspects of it that make it sort of cheesy and campy, like, for example, many of the practical effects land, but the ghoul, little marionette ghoul, was fucking goofy and funny. Um, I think it's a very good, like, I think it's a very good puppet, though. 
It is. Until um, you put it into motion. <laughs> exactly. But stuff like when the practical effects don't always land to sort of the ham-fistedness of the plot and its message mm-hmm. to how stilted some of the character interaction is, the flatness of the characters to Dave's absolute melodrama. It makes for a very it fun watch, I'd say. I I, I think I would recommend, like, if you watch this movie, you have to watch it with someone else. Oh, absolutely. Like, I got so much more watching this movie with Will and Kevin than I would have just on my own. You should have watched this movie alone, though. <laughs> watch it with friends. I think you'll get a lot of mileage out of it that way. It's got fun, goofy, campy moments, but I think it's got moments where the horror in presentation legitimately does well. Like in the atmosphere and with the practical effects. So that was Fraternal Fright's coverage of Gehenna. You can find us on Twitter under Fraternal Fright. There's no S at the end because it was too long. You can also find us on YouTube and SoundCloud and iTunes under Fraternal Frights.